passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, everybody, and welcome to your WWE fourth quarter year-end financial show. I am John Pollock, and here at Post Wrestling, it is a very, very cold day in Toronto, as it is in Buffalo, where we are joined by the man representing the WrestleNomics trade publication, (laughs) Brandon Thurston, is here with us. Brandon, how bad is it in Buffalo? I just got home from a a short walk. It is... uh, it is minus 18 Celsius up here in yeah, Toronto, which is Celsius. zero Fahrenheit, and it was... Zero Fahrenheit. We're in the single digits. We're at six degrees right now. Ooh. Six degrees here in Western New York. I'm not built for this weather at all. We are inside. It is uh, maybe uh, maybe as cold as it was the uh, the day after uh, Vince McMahon's return as executive chairman in uh, the Stanford uh, headquarters. But we have a lot to get into with uh, Thursday's... Earnings report covering the uh, the fourth quarter and all of 2022, a report that was supposed to come out Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, but then they figured, you know what, let's just throw a curveball, a 5 p.m. start, just uh, uh, a very, very difficult two-hour window in uh, in my life with, uh, with two children. But here we are, and we are yes. up to date, and I guess, uh, Brandon, it is another record-setting year. For profit, for revenue, they are forecasting more records to be shattered in 2023. But to me, it was more so the the shadow of Vince McMahon and the uh, strategic alternatives that were all over this call and this report. Yeah, the, this came out at four o'clock. The, the documents did the same time the dynamite rating did. So it was, it's a it's that vortex where you know I have to sit there and wait for the dynamite rating and the, and the documents to come out at any moment, but. I think the, the biggest story coming out of this is, is an exchange that happened in, in Q and A. Uh, the first question was from Lightshed's Brandon Ross, uh, an analyst who asked Nick Khan basically if he could assure investors with certain, with certainty that 
Vince would be willing to take a deal if it was the best deal for investors and and it meant Vince not being with the company at that point. And I think we have that that audio clip ready to play, right? It, it digging in on the strategic alternatives, I think the potential buyer universe is probably going to be impacted by Vince's desire to remain after a sale or not. Nick, can you tell investors with certainty that Vince will be willing to end his involvement with WWE um, following a transaction if that gives shareholders the most value? Yes, without question. He's declared it to the board. He's declared it to us in management. It's all about shareholder value. Obviously, he is a shareholder. So it's not about what role he'll have. It's about maximizing that value opportunity. And there we have it. Brandon Ross getting right to the meat of things. And much like WWE opens all of its uh, programming with its signature of then, now, together, forever. I feel these earnings calls for the next few quarters, they could start with their own signature. Maximum shareholder value. I mean, they just were hitting that drum. But that was maybe the longest one-second pause from a question to an answer as Nick Khan. Yes, he will step down if necessary. Yes, yes absolutely. So, and, and there's an, another story today coming out from CNBC with new comments from Nick Khan, but along the same lines. But, but CNBC has some sourcing where, where they say that McMahon's potential future involvement in WWE has become an early sticking point in preliminary talks with various buyers, according to people familiar with the matter who asked not to be named because discussions are private. And they have quotes from Nick Khan saying, Vince has declared to the board that he's 100% open to transactions where he's not included in the company moving forward. Khan acknowledged it's tough to, con- it's tough to take control from McMahon who has owned the company for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. Still, he reiterated that McMahon would prioritize shareholder value and step away if it's the right deal. And we will take a look at all of the factors that make it the right deal. Um, And I've pondered, well, if, if Vince was really, if that was really his top priority, if he was really out there to do the best thing for shareholders and certainly monetary in terms of money, he's, he's aligned there. He's the biggest single shareholder um, bigger than any institutional shareholder. So he's got money reasons to be motivated to accept the best deal that's offered. Uh, but if he wanted the best deal that was offered and wanted the most money to be delivered to shareholders, then why did he force his way back into this company in January? Uh, which ha- I, according to CNBC's sourcing has made a lot of potential buyers wary. Wouldn't you want Vince McMahon to be further removed? The, the, the person who, who resigned in scandal over the summer, wouldn't you want him to be further removed from the whole situation? And that would make more buyers more comfortable, bid more aggressively for this company. Yet he, he took it upon himself to force his way back into the company. Um, which tells me either he's not aware of the effect that he may have on potential buyers, which seems unlikely to me, or more likely to me, there's something else motivating Vince McMahon here. Do you think, uh, I know a favorite segment of yours is psychoanalyzing Vince McMahon, so trying to get into his head. If you are viewing the actions over the past uh, month or so, going back to you know his, his return and the lead up in December, that it's met with this gigantic increase in the stock price, 
Do you believe that Vince McMahon can decipher that this is largely contingent on a sale being presented as a very, very realistic possibility? Or do you believe that Vince McMahon looks at part of this being the fact that he he has a contributing uh, reason for the stock being up, that his involvement in the company uh, comes with it, that there is uh, a value to his presence that he believes this to be? Or can he separate the two? Because I very much think that this is completely reflective of the sale. And to your point, I think we could have been in this exact same point today, stock price, expectations through the through the roof without Vince McMahon uh, playing any kind of role in the sale talks. Yeah, I mean, the stock price has been up and to the right since the middle of June, since the news of sexual misconduct allegations against Vince became public through the Wall Street Journal. And it's gone up and to the right because the more trouble there was around Vince and then eventually him resigning encouraged the notion, the perception by Wall Street that he was going to be willing to sell because he would be removed from the company and he would be willing to, you know, he, he wouldn't have to worry about keeping control anymore. He'd be willing to give it up. And him coming back was paired with him explicitly saying, I'm back to explore a sale. So all of that is around encouraging Wall Street investors to believe that a sale is going to happen and that they're going to deliver a great value for shareholders. Does he believe that part of the reason why it's up is because investors think that Vince is the only one who can do this job and he's really great at it and now he's back and that's helpful for the company? Um, maybe. Do investors really believe that? Um, maybe some of them do. I think in, in investors are more willing to take these assertions by the company at face value than I am. Um, but I think, you know, he's, his return to the company has made it more likely that, that there's going to be a sale. But I don't think that despite Paul of comments on this call saying he's, he's so glad to have Vince McMahon back and to, it's great. A, a it's wealth great to have knowledge. this guy back. Yeah. And I, I think there's, I mean, even, even reading some of the, uh, the, the analyst reports today, it, it certainly sounds like they're taking it at face value. It's hard for me to take at face value Nick's comments about Vince prioritizing shareholder value or Paul Levesque's comments that uh, he's really glad to have Vince back. Even at a boardroom level, he's just got so much knowledge and it's, it's tremendous value to have him there, which I'm sure it, it, there may be some truth to that. Uh, but there's, I believe, some negative, <laughs> uh, some ne- some negatives that come with Vince being back there, too. It, it does seem like there are sort of these conflicts within this uh, strategic alternative process. You have, you know, the, the report that you just cited of CNBC noting that there are some that are wary of Vince's involvement. And then you also have this line from Nick Kahn during, during the call uh, when asked about what you are looking for in a partner. And he stated, uh, it has to be a partner that is more than simply deep pockets, a partner that understands the media business, that's in the media business, that understands how to further monetize the media business, and that certainly understands our product, our IP, and and the fact that we can grow it both domestically and internationally. And it would seem like if you are – to me, this is very much describing a, a non-Saudi Arabia option of ones that – you know, you would be looking at a lot of these media companies and those would be sort of the the suitors that you would assume would fall into this line of being most wary of Vince McMahon. 
Yeah. Do, do you have a, a company that, that most that most closely fits the description that, that he just laid out there? Uh, of growing it, I, I would certainly be looking at, I, I would certainly see that this would be, uh, certainly positioning things towards your endeavor option, towards yeah. your, your, that's what I would a, say. That, that sounds yeah. most like endeavor. And would also maybe be in kind of that middle ground of someone that would maybe have less resistance to, uh, a Vince McMahon than maybe others would. If we're talking about a Disney, for instance, if, if mm-hmm. they were in the mix, but, you know, it, it certainly does uh, tell you that you know, I, I took away from this um, that this is not simply like the Saudi Arabia public investment fund can just make a an offer. Maybe if they're getting into the level of a 20 billion that they were reportedly had towards F1. Um, but I don't know. It, it does seem like they like I had less uh, likelihood of that potential option. If if this is truly what they are hoping to have is not just a a gigantic offer made, but also something that can take and grow this company um, with all of the infrastructure that exists that Saudi Arabia is not coming to the table with that same level of infrastructure in the U.S. media and abroad. Yeah, it just really remains to be seen whether, I mean, Nick is saying one thing and all these things make sense. That's if you're in this situation where you're, you're definitely exploring a company sale or some sort of merger those are all the right things that you would say. You would say that this is the kind of company that we're, we're looking to get aligned with here, a company that's going to make this business even stronger. And yeah, we're willing to take a deal that even excludes Vince going forward. Ultimately, though, Vince McMahon is the one who has to approve of, of some sort of deal. And I don't know that Nick Khan, you know, I'm sure he's having discussions with Vince about this, obviously. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't know that, you know, that, that Vince, uh, you know, he, Nick is not a mind reader and ultimately Vince, Vince McMahon only knows exactly what he's going to approve of and exactly what his intentions are. So, and, I, and I'm sure that there are, we've already got a few class action shareholder lawsuits out there and I'm sure they're watching closely to see what's being said here and to see what's being written in, in their disclosures. If we end up in a situation where, let's say there is no sale, or there is a sale that gives Vince McMahon a role in the company, you know, that may be fuel for shareholder litigation where shareholders could allege that, well, you took it, you took this deal and you could have gotten a better deal if you had uh, accepted a situation where Vince wasn't involved and, and we would have gotten a, a better deal and we deserve some kind of compensation because of that. So, I mean, these are things, this is not the end of the company. There, there's going to be lawsuits against WWE, you know, in perpetuity forever, probably. But, but it's, it's something, you know, that, that we'll see in legal filings and it's something that could cost WWE, uh, their insurers at least. You know, given the comments on CNBC today and, you know, you have, you have been someone that has been very, uh, I guess, uh, cautious regarding you know comcast as a viable uh, buyer of wwe there's a lot of reasons that would make sense for it where do you sit right now in regards to comcast their state of affairs and how wwe relates to it it makes a lot of sense for comcast to buy because they're so deeply invested in raw and in nxt and in peacock um but i'm not convinced that brian roberts would approve of, of a WWE sale brian roberts is the ceo of, of Comcast. He's kind of the Vince McMahon of Comcast in terms of he's the, the, the leader of the family who has control of the company. 
Um, I'm not sure that he wants to be associated with a wrestling company and that they want to manage that business. And wrestling is a weird business that I don't, I don't know that they're, that they're, they'd be super confident that they can manage. Um, so I'm not, it, it makes a lot of sense because you buy the house rather than continue to rent it in terms of live sports rights fees. Um, but ultimately, even, even in a, in a, you know, a less scandalous situation than we're in where, you know, let's, let's say the, the news about Vince is not broken and they're exploring a sale. I still don't know that these big media companies want to be associated with the wrestling company because of the stigma around wrestling and because the, 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 just the strangeness of, you know, questioning whether you can really manage it effectively. We also got the latest regarding the, uh, the investigation into Vince McMahon, which recently had the, uh, the settlement with Rita Chatterton and, you know, this investigation, uh, throughout 2022, the price tag attached to this investigation was $21.7 million, including $2.3 million in the fourth quarter. And of the amount that is not covered by insurance, uh, Vince McMahon has agreed to pay $7.4 million of expenses. So this is almost, uh, two WCWs for Vince McMahon for, uh, for his piece of the, uh, the investigation that he is, uh, fronting the bill for. Um, staggering figures and uh i I can't say like this was a a gigantic topic on the call but they did uh you know this was kind of frank riddick's department to pretty much just go through the numbers and they do expect the impact of the investigation to continue into 2023 as these payments have been set up for some of these settlements that will be um you know paid off in the in future installments yeah and i was was reading through the annual report today um, and I, I didn't see any comments about, you know, what, what has changed in terms of their policy or anything like that. But they, they, they say that they have a, a number of recommendations. We talked about this before. They have a number of recommendations, uh, in, including the, the investigation of the workplace culture. But, you know, shareholders don't know what, what that means. That hasn't been disclosed publicly. And, you know, we still don't know what, uh, you know, has there been any policy changes? Have, have there been any changes to the, to the company work culture? that ensures that employees and talent aren't going to be subject to the kind of uh, misconduct that's alleged uh, by all these, uh, by, by the allegations against Vince and John Laurinaitis. Yeah, I was waiting for the question about, um, Nick, you recently noted that anyone who really thought Vince McMahon was leaving last summer, uh, does, no one actually believed he was leaving. So with, with that uh, provision, when will John Laurinaitis be coming back to the company? <laughs> Right. Yeah. There's none well, of that. Yes. He's still unnamed executive in, uh, in most of these, uh, d- descriptions as well. When it comes to, um, a- another interesting note that we learned in the call, it was the expiration of the existing domestic rights deal for NXT that will be coming due in September. So not at the exact same time as the Raw and SmackDown deals with USA and Fox, but they seem to be very optimistic about what interest there is in NXT, it is based on the numbers that they are outperforming the primetime average for uh, the USA Network. Um, anything you look at in terms of NXT and sort of its role in this whole renegotiation process for its domestic rights? And is NXT on more solid footing than maybe a year ago when this brand was much more, I would say, in flux? Yeah, it's... um. I'm guessing these are two-year deals then for NXT because mm-hmm. they renewed one already. We've been through one cycle. So they started in October 2019. I think they renewed and they renewed 
with the new season beginning in October 2021. So I'm guessing that their current deal is just going to expire this year, October. Um, I, I don't think NXT is this huge value. I have little sense of what it is, but it's definitely not the $50 million or so that was speculated when they first made the move to the USA Network. Um, I guess they're, in, they're in, a, in a better position than they were throughout, say, early 2022 when, when ratings were really starting to fall. But NXT is, is, is up substantially from, from where it was a year ago. And Raw and SmackDown are up really strongly, too. I, I think that's, along with all these comments from Nick Khan about Vince, I think that's the other sort of big story is despite this albatross of Vince just looming over the country, over the country, over the, over the company. And, and what's <laughs> he going to get do? too far ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we might not be too far from that. He's, he's an authoritarian ruler like many others. Uh, you know, and, and what's he going to do? Is he, is he trying to slow roll his way back into creative? Maybe. But what's happening in the meantime is that at least on paper and, and, and as far as we know at TV, Paul Levesque is leading creative and, Things seem to be going pretty well. Um, I've demonstrated a number of times with with lots of numbers, including ticket sales, merchandise sales, uh, TV ratings, adjusting for what what maybe we should adjust them for, uh, looking at web search and other things that, look, WD's popularity declined from 2017 through 2019 or so. Or maybe go back to 2016 to 2019. So all that before the pandemic interrupts a lot of things. Popularity declined for WWE, uh, and what's happened now is I, I it's it's hard to say since the the return to touring. Of course, ticket sales were up, and there was this you know pent up demand. Uh, but now here we are. It's it's Q four twenty twenty two that they just reported, and live attendance was up somewhat, not huge. I think the average attendance in North America was fifty five hundred compared to fifty two hundred, so it's up a little bit. Um, they're they're talking good stories around monetization, around advertising and sponsorships. So they seem to be doing very well in terms of Royal Rumble did really well with ads and sponsorships. They had that article in the Hollywood Reporter the other day saying we've already, you know, beaten the WrestleMania ads and sponsorships revenue by like 43% with a quote from, from a senior vice president of the company. So that monetization is doing better. Um, we have little idea of what, what merchandise sales are like we used to because they've licensed their online merchandise to fanatics. You'll notice if you go to wshop.com, you're no longer in the in-house wshop.com. You're onto the fanatics platform. So what we don't get in the reporting anymore is the number of sales, uh, the average order price. We used to get that every quarter. Now, no more of that because that's all licensed through through fanatics. And I think what's happening as well is there's a lower expense that's associated with that. Uh, and there's lower revenue, but it's ultimately maybe more profitable for them. But anyway, uh, ticket sales seem to be up. Uh, they, their, their TV ratings, which is probably the most important factor of all, their TV ratings are doing quite well. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of this is a little bit of hot shotting, right? With this raw 30 show. Uh, you had the John Cena episode on December 30th. But this this pre Royal Rumble SmackDown, I was shocked by how how high the rating was when I read the Fast Affiliate, and then it was basically confirmed by the final rating. The Raw after Rumble, in terms of comparing a rating to its trailing four weeks, did as good as any Rumble any post Rumble Raw episode has done for a rating. Um, and so, should probably follow tonight, where you know the Bloodline angle was the big thing coming out of the Rumble, and you're getting that follow up potentially tonight. So you would. 
you know, reasonably expect a pretty strong SmackDown number tonight as well. Like, it does feel like this is, you know, yes, they had some, you know, Cena and the Raw 30 special, but it was also, I think, people swooping in and it is the existing, you know, A storyline that is, you know, keeping interest at at a time when, you know, casual interest is going to be higher as well. Yeah, so we have ratings are good. Ticket sales are good. They they've they highlighted a number of venue merchandise records at, at, at the big events. Um, they continue to give us these these uh, viewership percentage differences for the PLEs on Peacock, which I think have minimal meaning because Peacock subscribers have doubled. There they are. There they are on the lower third. Peacock subscribers have doubled year over year. So what do these mean? I don't know. Well, can, can I just say if we were doing this on our respective Patreons versus YouTube, we're up about two thousand percent in uh, in viewership uh, from from one platform to the other as well. There you go. It, it, it's like it's it's just the reverse of of the situation that TV is in. TV is the platform that's enormous but is on the decline. Streaming is this platform that's much smaller but is on the rise. So of course the these are up. They better be up. Um, but but. You got other things like ratings and ticket sales, maybe merchandise sales, and improved monetization that they're talking about with ads and sponsors. If, if you love the pitch black Mountain Dew match, expect more of that to come. Um, yeah, I guess we got the, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch uh, oh. Battle Royal to look forward to. Maybe it'll be uh, Cody Rhodes Cinnamon Coast, uh, Toast Crunch to the title uh, quest. Um, these, are, these are great ideas. Do you – and I ask this seriously. Obviously, these are going to be more and more embedded. And I remember when they were starting to talk about more logos on like NHL jerseys and you had some mm-hmm. fans like uh, – of more storied franchises like the Montreal Canadiens that their fan base – like there was pushback. Like these are these sacred jerseys that have been ad-free. Uh, do you expect any kind of like that kind of response from aren't, fans? Aren't the NHL divisions now sponsored by corporate sponsors? Um, you're asking the wrong person. I, I, <laughs> if you could take me back to like NHL 95 on Sega Genesis, I, I could go through uh, the state of uh, things there. But, yeah. you know, beyond like people making jokes about the Mountain Dew pitch black match, like it seems like these are big deals for the company and even more so like a very anti Vince stance of opening up the canvas and the ramp mm-hmm. and other areas to, uh, you know, place sponsors like that has always been heavy real estate. And that seemed to be, you know, a line Vince McMahon just did not want to cross for all those years. As odd as that is, that seemed to be a, you know, an aesthetic he wanted to maintain as, you know, clean property on the screen. Yeah, it's something that he's always avoided. And if you look at any UFC show, you, you see the logos all over, all, all over there, Matt and boxing, uh, even AW has had some on, on their canvas. So yeah, I would expect that going forward. I mean, it's, if he's truly out of the, the decision-making process, then I would expect it to happen sometime in the relatively near future. Um, but yeah, it seems like, like WWE's in a, not only they're improving their, their degree of monetization, but also seeming to b- build back some trust and engagement with wrestling fans who they've lost over the, the latter part of, of the previous decade. Um, I don't see things being nearly to the degree they were in the middle of that decade, the 2010s, which is sort of a, I I think we don't really realize it until it's, it's well in the past, just how much say 2015, 2016, maybe, maybe 2014, 15, 16 were this, this period of increased popularity for WWE in particular. And I think it's, it's sort of 
you know, took an avenue down into the increased popularity of other wrestling brands. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think they're in a, in a, in a good place despite all of this news around Vince. We should mention for the call itself, you know, there was that question of, you know, does, does Vince McMahon have any kind of, um, presence on, on this call? He did not. It was led by Nick Khan and then yeah. deferring to Paul Levesque and Frank Riddick. And Paul Levesque sort of found himself sort of taking over a lot of the material that Stephanie McMahon would disseminate from all of the, the social, uh, records that they have set, putting out a lot of numbers, but also, you know, his stamp on creative and singling out, you know, specific storylines and talent, which, you know, as much as these calls, like that, it's very rare that they would actually go out of their way to go through like some of the talents and what's going on screen. Like it's very much like the business and the numbers. Uh, how did you feel just about Paul Levesque's uh, maybe more increased presence on this call? This is basically what I predicted. I didn't have a lot of confidence, but I figured he would be Nick and Frank Riddick and maybe Paul Levesque too. And I'm guessing that's what it's going to be going forward. Um, it's, it's in, in the, in the Vince era, they wouldn't mention talent very much. I don't know that this was a huge difference here, but they did mention things like Rhea Ripley winning the Rumble and Cody winning the Rumble. And the bloodline angle was, was mentioned in Sami Zayn's name. The most dramatic moment in pro wrestling history. Brandon. Sports entertainment. Let's get it right here. They, oh, they, of course. They mentioned an ESPN article that, that called it the most dramatic or whatever moment in sports entertainment history. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, from listening to these, these calls over, over the years, I've always, it's always kind of felt like, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of like reinforced this, this sort of atmosphere. I think that, that, it, that's in wrestling discourse of like the creative doesn't matter. The content doesn't matter. Everything's guaranteed, but ultimately it does matter. And there's a lot more talk of that when you've got a head of creative that's willing to talk about it and wants to hype, you know, all of their successes. So I think it, it, it does matter. And it's a thing that's, you know, that's kind of removed from investors and I don't expect the investment community to really understand that well, but, um, it's a huge part of the business. So I, it's, it's important to talk about, I think. There was also a line that Nikon included when they were going over Raw's performance, uh, going against Monday Night Football uh, throughout the fourth quarter, uh, noting the fact that, you know, you had broadcasts uh, at times it was simulcast on ABC, as well as bringing up the Manning cast, which is the the alternate commentary version for Monday Night Football, calling it what he views wildly successful. And I wonder if this is something that is sort of in, you know, as you are going into all of these negotiations, if the idea of putting raw with an alternate commentary track, if that would be something that, you know, you've seen a lot of sports mimic the Manning cast. Um, ideally no commentary track, right? <laughs> or you could put uh maybe, maybe Paul Levesque on his headset uh, could be the, the alternate uh, commentary track. Uh, do you see that as uh, any kind of, would that be uh, an engaging idea for WWE with the right people involved that that, or is, are we talking something so niche for raw or even SmackDown that uh, people seeking out alternate commentary for no, I uh, could, streaming. I could see them doing that. I'm sure it's something they're, they've, they're considering. Um, I, I mean, I, they I were kind of doing it for a while with their pay-per-views, just having the, like on that YouTube. Sounds the, right. That's right. Who, who can yeah. forget Sean Waltman just being <laughs> flabbergasted by, by the hell in a cell and ending in a DQ. Um, a yeah, I, 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 I could see that. I, but on the other hand, like, I think, you know, do we have examples of success with that other than the NFL, other than Monday Night Football, where you've got 
the the audience of an NFL game and the personalities of of the Mannings to to do that. That's that's the key. I mean, I don't know what your equivalent would be in pro wrestling. Certainly, WWE has access to you know um, pretty much a who's who in the industry. But I I don't know the the idea of listening to that gripping of a personality for three hours. I don't know if your Peyton Manning equivalent in pro wrestling would be. Um, up for that for for weekly engagement that people and, would be so interested to hear the viewership that the ESPN two telecast does with the man it's, it, it's it's incremental right it's like one and a half million extra viewers or so on top of like twenty million so it's something it helps it, it, helps it gets a lot business. of critical praise from kind yeah. of media pundits but it is not like this gigantic um, you know phenomenon either but enough that you know other sports have tried to copy it but I think it's going to be very much like like a drive to survive that many are going to try their versions of it, but it is going to be uh, difficult to catch on. It was just noteworthy that Nick Khan threw it out there. And I'm sure there's plenty of ideas being thrown at the wall for these negotiations of what is additional content that costs us virtually nothing in addition to produce. And we could get more content out of, and that that would certainly be a pretty cheap option. Along those lines, I, I would more so expect to see some sort of W program, maybe occasionally, on more than one platform, which is what we see with Monday Night Football, for example, where it's on, where it's for, for, and in some weeks it is on ESPN, ESPN2, and ABC, and they get this really big audience because of it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see some episodes of Raw maybe be on USA Network and be on Peacock in the, in the next round. We're talking 2024 and beyond. Um, or maybe even, I mean, you know, look at what's on, what's on NBC on Monday nights or, or what, what's on the, the broadcast network that's partnered with whoever gets the rights. But maybe they end up with, with it on broadcast in some situations too. Maybe that's like a, you know, big deal legends episode or something. But uh, I could, I could see that. Just going back to some of the um, divisions of the company. What what did you take away from sort of where we are in terms of the health of WWE live events? And I'd couple this with sort of your own thoughts as AEW is entering this space as well with the announcement of their House Rules series. Mm-hmm. Where where does WWE stand, especially compared to pre-pandemic, where it was sort of hitting its lowest point? The house, house show business doesn't look like a great business, but AEW is going to get into it anyway. Um I, I was surprised by the, the number that they reported. Operating income, which is a way of measuring profit, right? They made a grand total of $200,000 in oh Q4. Boy. So it just barely over the edge. Um, and in pre-pandemic times, they, they actually lost money in live events. In, in the quarters where they have WrestleMania, okay, WrestleMania is such a profitable event, it, it, it blows it away, and that quarter is safely profitable. Um, in the previous quarter, Q3, they did Clash of the Castle. Clash of the Castle did an $8 million gate. So this uh, you know, live events division was easily profitable. It looks like even if you subtract that out, they probably would have been profitable anyway. Anyway, since the return to touring, they've been doing pretty well with this division in terms of keeping it profitable. We've got, you know... Let's see here. Nine million dollars. Well, only one million dollars, one and a half million dollars in Q4. But it's been just over the edge, at least a million dollars, two million dollars of, of profitability. And, and now it's getting really close to zero. Um, it's, it continues to raise the question, like, what's the value of house shows? And you can make some sort of justification about, well, it's good for talent development because it gives talent reps. And we have a lot of inexperienced talent that really needs these reps. Um, 
it's a it's a way to go out into towns around the country and and promote AEW or WWE and make memories that last a lifetime and get people more engaged downstream with the product. Uh, it's a way to to make relationships with with venues and stuff like that. But uh, at least in the short term, I highly doubt that these events are making money uh, it just off of the ticket sales and the merchandise sales because we're talking about a, a, an event that probably costs at least a couple hundred thousand dollars to put on and then you're going to sell tickets for like you know less probably less than fifty dollars in the average ticket price and you're going to draw a couple thousand fans maybe especially in the case of AEW I, I could see them really struggling uh, to, to draw fans to these events unless they do something spectacular to make these events worth going to um, with their, you know, especially smart fan base. So it's, it's a, it's a hard business to be in. And, and it just, we need to highlight again and again, this is not a ticketing business, this wrestling business, you know, maybe, maybe on the Indies that, that, that's their main source of revenue, but the wrestling business has changed tremendously over the last 20 years or so. This is a video business. This is a, a business where you sell live TV, you sell a pay-per-view, you sell a streaming product, you sell some sort of video, and that's what makes the event profitable. The TV event that costs a half a million to a million dollars to put on, it's not going to be profitable at all unless you have some sort of media revenue, like a, like TV rights fees, like a pay-per-view, or like some kind of streaming product that's going to put it well over the edge, which is the case for WAW. But they continue to do house shows for I don't know why. We, uh, if you want to get any super chats before we wind down, we will be taking those, uh, as well. But, uh, just a couple more topics here. In terms of Peacock, uh, Comcast recently held their earnings call as well, sort of giving an update on where Peacock stands now. They are, you know, they added five million paid subscribers, which is kind of part and parcel with, with, you know, WWE having a increased viewership and, where do you see sort of the state of Peacock at the moment as it comes to, you know, comparing to the major streamers that are out there? Um, I have no access to Peacock, so I can't really uh, speak to any kind of viewing beyond the WWE content that uh, exists there. Uh, do you ever uh, navigate through Peacock? Are you a big Yellowstone viewer, Brandon? No, I've, I've, I've watched parts of Yellowstone, but uh, no, I'm, I'm not a big uh, in, engager with programming in, in general. But I think, you know, Peacock is, it has 20 million subscribers. That's like a third of what Netflix does. Netflix in the U.S., we don't know exactly because it's, it's roped in with Canada, but uh, somewhere around 60 million for, for Netflix. Um, and I, I know Comcast reported that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to have their, their biggest loss in 2023, and then the losses will, will hopefully level off. So this is, the streaming business is a huge investment, and it's, it's a, it's a risk, and are, are streamers ever really going to make the money back that they're, that they're dumping into streaming is a big question. And is the streaming business ever going to be as profitable as the cable business is? It, it doesn't look like it to me. Um, which, if there's going to be, to take this back to wrestling, you know, if there's going to be a, a moment where live sports fees finally level off, I've heard people hyping for, for years and years and years that this will be the year where live sports rights fees finally don't get upgraded across the board. And that's just never happened. Um, but maybe it happens when, uh, when, when the profits from, from cable finally start to, to go away in a really meaningful way 
and it's and it's clear that streaming isn't going to to make it up. I'm guessing because streaming is just such a more flexible product that there isn't the friction in the way of in terms of canceling and signing up. And you know, people have have paid for cable for for years and years with these uh, you know subscription costs that incrementally improve over time. And streaming for now is much cheaper. I think everyone's subscription fees are going to increase over time, but I don't know that it's going to result in the profitability for those big businesses uh, that that cable has been. And if they run out of, you know, the, the the revenues and run out of the subscriber fees that that the Comcasts and charters of the world are used to collecting, then that money is going to start to to go away from the NBCUs and the WBDs and the paramount globals of the world. And ultimately that that's going to leave less money on the table for WWE and AEW to, to make an argument that they should get a, a big chunk of. So if there's a leveling off of live sports rights fees in the, in the foreseeable future, maybe it's because of, you know, traditional TV finally losing its value and streaming, not it being clear that streaming is not going to make it up. The last topic I wanted to bring up is the Bloomberg article that did a extensive profile on AEW and Tony Khan with a cover photo that I feel is going to live in infamy uh, for yeah. Tony Khan. I could see this becoming his, uh, his Wikipedia profile picture uh, in, in future years, uh, very, very potentially, uh, any, any, I, I, like I read this article, it was, you know, noteworthy in the fact that they did attach the, the hundred million dollar revenue figure for 2022. A lot of though that I think if you're listening to WrestleNomics, if you're following the news on a semi-regular basis, nothing, I think that was earth shattering in, in this article, but it did kind of put together like a concise picture of AEW where they stand right now. While also asking, was the CM Punk press conference a work or a shoot? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to read it. I've skimmed it and I've seen the the highlight of the one hundred million dollars in, in annual revenue, mm-hmm. which um, I did. I did do a spreadsheet the other week because I've been debating whether I'm going to do this twenty twenty two annual report with with all the the things I've got going on here. So I did do a spreadsheet to try to estimate what I think their revenue was for the year, and I did get. One hundred point four million dollars. So that that's Brandon Thurston, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, the, Brandon uh, just nailing the numbers. So that that's very believable to me. And then the notion that they want to do a streaming service, I'm aware, I'm aware of. And then the world just needed 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 more memes, I guess. Needed more memes of, of Tony Khan out there uh, on the internet for people to consume and play with. But uh, and my other takeaway. Uh, just, you know, knowing what the last uh, sentence in, in this article was, is that, you know, the it's millennial mainstream reporters um, have have, you know, graduated from their predecessors who their predecessors would do all these silly puns based on wrestling moves. Right. Well, their move, the, the next generation's move is to shoehorn wrestling jargon in, yeah. in, into their sentences. That's it. That's it. This is the new uh, this is a. Uh... 
the, the the origins of kayfabe. Yes, this is uh this is where we're going. So as m- I, we might be through the run of SmackDown uh, puns, so we're moving on to to the next generation. But yeah. uh, Brandon, uh, it's always great to uh, break all of this down with you, and thanks to everybody uh, for joining us live. Uh, if I can, I'm going to give everyone a book recommendation. Okay. Oh wow. This is from 1991. I just purchased it. It is called Net Worth, Exploding the Myths of Pro Hockey. Now, this was made into a movie on CBC in the mid-90s, which I watched as a kid. The book is – it is fascinating, especially if you follow combat sports and the plight of uh, independent contractors and what the – NHL players uh, went through in their struggles with ownership and the league as well. So I think if you uh, if you could certainly apply many of these to uh, modern day, where as we talk about Mountain Dew sponsorships or uh, UFC partnering up with Logan Paul's energy drink, the trickle down of those deals to the talent zero. So all of this very uh, very interesting as we uh, we look back at uh, you know companies that. UFC and WWE prime examples of companies that are thriving financially that are not beholden to associations or unions. Is, is, the players as, is that about like the players association being? It's sort of the, 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 the formation of the players association, how they were messed out of their, their pension fund with connections to Alan Eagleson and such. And just mm. the fact that, uh, not to get into the weeds here, but Jack Adams, who was the, the head coach of the Detroit Red Wings and in charge of the contracts every year. So Gordie Howe is the top player in the league year in, year out. And they would just put an empty check in, or an empty contract in front of him and said, just put down what you think you're worth. And Gordie Howe would just put down like a thousand dollars and it, just putting this pressure on him and be, be telling Gordie, do you feel you had a great year last year? Yes, I did. But compared to the standard you hold yourself to, Gordy, and he says, no, I, I had some dry spells. And he, he punished himself by keeping his salary wow. so low and not realizing the gigantic revenue that the Detroit Red Wings were bringing in. It's fascinating to, where, to read Where was the this. Nick Khan of, uh, of Gordy Howe's era to come in there and uh, agent him and get, get a good deal for him? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if uh, Ted Lindsay would be the parallel to uh, to Nick Khan, but it's a, it's a fascinating book, and it's like fifteen bucks on Amazon if anyone wants to uh, purchase it. I'm I'm greatly enjoying it, and lots of uh, connective tissue. But that's going to do it all for us. Uh, Wei Ting and I are going to be back tonight, eleven Eastern, for all Post Wrestling Cafe members. With uh, we're going to be chatting all the latest news as well as SmackDown and Rampage. You can go to postwrestlingcafe.com for that show, and then Sunday we've got a brand new edition of WrestleNomics, and I am sure that uh, the earnings call and fallout will be uh, discussed anything else that you can share that is coming up sunday at 11 a.m eastern time i'm sure we're going to discuss uh, more about the, the bloomberg article about AEW, more about AEW's house shows and uh maybe a few things that i can unearth from the uh the annual report and just exactly how much money WWE collected from nbc universal fox and the kingdom of saudi arabia according to their own disclosures so be there Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern, each and every week. All right. You can check that out. Uh, you can go to WrestleNomics.com and uh, and support us. Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics and Patreon.com slash Post Wrestling. This has been a... Another successful WrestleNomics post-wrestling collaboration. Uh, we dropped yes. an interview together earlier this week with Abe Reisman, the author of the upcoming book on Vince McMahon entitled Ringmaster. And... Uh, you know, sources state that there may be more 
uh, tandem interviews with myself and Brandon down yes. the road. We're, we're so pleased with this partnership. We, I, we, we at Russellomics, we really love the way it's working out. Uh, yes, we, we, we always love our business partners. But yes, we, we, we might do more of these going forward. We'll, That's right. We'll, we'll continue right. to discuss. Yes, you, you, our listeners, substitute that for shareholder. That's that's the motto, the credo that we live by yes. here at Post Wrestling and WrestleNomics. So that is going to wrap things up. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Goodbye. <laughs>